0: you're listening to burst your bubble i'm josh and i've got kyler here with me we're here to bring you the sharpest sports takes today we have on a special guest he's an 11-time emmy award-winning sports broadcaster slash investigative journalist and he's also a five-time new york times best selling author armin katayan he's on with us for about an hour-long interview we get into his career his books on tiger woods and we break some news that you will love to hear we also recap the NASCAR race and the drama inside the arena from Wednesday night. The NBA has a potential return date set, and we take a seat at the Degenerates' den. Our website's coming soon with access to our blogs, full shows on YouTube, full clips of totem poles, and much more. So stay tuned into our social media on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Burst Your Bubble. We're available everywhere you get your podcast. You can even get us on your Alexa devices. If you're bored at home, just say, Alexa, play Burst Your Bubble Podcast. Then remember to rate, review, and share this with your friends or literally anyone you know. Thanks for listening, and remember, no hard feelings because more than likely, one of us will burst your bubble. It is Friday, May 22nd, start of Memorial Day weekend. Uh, Big plans coming up for me, uh, at least today, going out on the lake, going to get on the boat after work. I uh, spend some time, maybe drink a couple of alcoholic beverages, adult beverages, maybe not alcoholic, some adult beverages, um, virgin, non-virgin, you know, whatever I feel like. Uh, Kyle, are, are you excited for the long weekend?
1: What's a, what's a virgin alcoholic beverage?
0: Virgin adult beverage. You know, you just fancy a drink up, make it look oh, nice, yeah. but it doesn't have to have alcohol.
1: What makes an adult, what, what, a kid can't drink that? No, no,
0: no, not if you fancy it up. You know, this is for adults only.
1: Okay, I got gotcha. you. Yeah, I don't have a lot planned this weekend. Um, I've actually got um a new job I start on Saturday. I'm really excited about. um, So I hope that goes well. But, uh, Josh, I had a little bit of live sports tonight. Oh, yeah? What did you uh, watch? Yeah, as usual, Coach Doug's put on a show. Uh, back-to-back 55-point offensive juggernaut performances.
0: 55-point games. That's good for him. How many interceptions did he throw or did his quarterback uh, throw?
1: I don't know, you kind of tuned out. It got, it got kind of ugly fast. And, you know, that's mm. not good for Doug's. You know, it's not good for his viewers. People love to see him suffer. People love to see him lose. Um, and Brandon Walker, Walk the Line, Barstool, brought up a great point in their podcast. Um, Doug's average attendance per game, he's in the top 25 in the nation. And uh, now he's at Tennessee. It's likely his audience. He, he's going to reach over 100,000 people at one of these games this year.
0: I'm going to make him one of the most popular programs in the
1: nation. He's going to be the, the most attended college football games in the nation.
0: And everyone's watching it on Twitch.
1: If, if there's been a, this is the largest campaign, and I think will be the most successful campaign for the return of a video game ever.
0: Absolutely. And if this is doing nothing but driving people to that, I'm, I'm surprised there's not petitions out already. I mean, did you see the
1: resale price? I think it's already like tripled in the past two months.
0: It doesn't surprise me at all. And just because it's, you know, everything got a little bit more expensive because everyone wanted the,
1: the nostalgia. Yeah, I think uh, right now you can buy NCAA 14 on eBay for around $150. Wow. That's all I got planned for the weekend, man. I might try and, might try and hunt down that memory card so I can try and get back in the game myself, EA style. Uh, but let's get into some headlines if you don't got anything else
0: the first thing I want to get into is the LeBron James-Paul Pierce uh, I want to say feud because it came out today a little bit what it was so originally Paul Pierce tweeted out his top five of all time and he left LeBron James out. Blasphemy or not? Oh, well, def- Definite blasphemy so uh, continue with the story. So obvious blasphemy uh, Perk kind of blasted him on Twitter a little bit and then Perk comes out with a tweet that Paul Pierce kept LeBron out of his top five because there was a personal feud, a personal uh, beef there. And so, obviously, everyone's wondering what it was. So, the guys got him on uh, a Zoom call, um, and they were asking him about it. And apparently, it was at a preseason game. The game didn't even matter. The game literally meant nothing. Him and LeBron are going back and forth. The bench starts chirping at Paul. Paul chirps back to the bench, spits at the bench. Doesn't know if he spit on anyone or not. The tension started flaring. Him and LeBron were getting into it. Uh, and ever since that day, um, I guess Paul Pierce and LeBron have had a uh, an ongoing feud.
1: Definitely. I mean, we, we've we always seen that. You know, LeBron has always had that hatred for the Celtics. Um, and, you know, those guys over over with Boston. We saw him team up with Ray, obviously, and the disdain there from, from the jump. I mean, those guys, KG and Paul, they were so salty about the Rondo, too. Rayon would even think to consider teaming up with you know in Miami of all places, and then with LeBron. Uh, so, yeah, a lot of hate there.
0: So, you want to know a fun stat about LeBron James and Paul Pierce? Always. LeBron James has over a thousand points scored when Paul Pierce is guarding him. Mm. That was a tweet that I saw. Uh, it was it was from a blue check mark?
1: Not good. So, I mean, if you do if you do the math on that, LeBron James is probably going to score around thirty six thousand career points, maybe above that. And uh, uh, 1,000 of that coming on Pierce, that's not good.
0: Yeah, it's, uh, it's not a good look, especially when you're leaving the man out of your top five.
1: So uh, speaking of the NBA, um, did you see Spencer Dinwiddie's tweet? Uh, I did, but uh, maybe you got a little bit more insight than I do on it. So uh, a guy tweeted, I'm not really sure who the blue check mark was that tweeted it. He said, NBA season, June 21st. Uh, Spencer quoted it and basically said that um, that's just practice. The first game is scheduled to be um rumored to be July 15th um which is a Wednesday and also rumored is that um uh, all teams are going to play 5 regular season games and then into the playoffs. So this is uh thing I told you the same thing Josh this is less to do with playoff positioning and more to do with um finishing out these regional TV contracts for all the teams you know not just the playoff teams. Um but one thing I've also heard is that instead of bringing all 30 teams back they're just going to bring 24 um and leave the bottom three of each conference out.
0: Which, and you know, that kind of goes with the theme of they've been talking about the less people there, the less chance of, you know, people getting uh, the coronavirus, less chance, less exposure with the less people. So, I mean, it it would make sense for the league to kind of go this way, but then you kind of have to wonder, you know, what, what teams are getting left off? Is it just the, the teams that like in the East, you know, if you're not in the playoffs, those bottom three teams from each conference, you know, or, you you know, what's the plan.
1: You got to ask, how does that affect the salary cap? But, uh, And one thing that I wanted to talk about, though, uh, I wanted to get your opinion on it. It seems like the bubble system, um, players are going to be allowed to leave, I -hmm. think is what Jared Dudley said. Um, How do you feel about that?
0: Uh, It definitely puts in a different perspective. I mean, the bubble is supposed to be (laughs) there to make sure that these players are, you know, staying isolated and, you know, being able to play the game away from from other people. So I don't really know the point of – then leaving and coming back. I don't know what that's really going to look like. It seems kind of yeah. counterproductive.
1: Yeah. yeah, it does seem exactly, that's the, exactly the word for it, counterproductive. Um, so the one thing that, I mean, we talked about last episode, it's nice to see that they're getting on schedule, getting, you know, some dates out there. They're telling players, you know, June 1st is the rumored date where they're going to try to get players, you know, hey, this is the date you need to start preparing to mentally and physically get ready for training camp. So that means, you know, start isolating yourself so that means, you know, we'll get all the positive tests out of the way. So when we do start playing games, hopefully there won't be any positive tests. But, you know, like you said, if, there's, if the bubble's open and players are leaving, it seems kind of counter, counterproductive. So this, uh, bubble being,
0: got, this, this bubble being open is kind of like if you have a separate bank account from your spouse and you're both going on a diet and at home there's no ice cream in the freezer, but on your way back from work you stop by Sonic and sneak one of those half-price blasts. and pay with quarters and pay with quarters and that way they never know about it but that's the bubble that you're in it actually doesn't do any good you still are going to eat the ice cream
1: oh that's my life uh but uh so two things so these are uh two ideas i had josh about the nba playoffs really quick uh tv viewing experience you know we're always trying to better the tv experience throw out the ideas um these are free these are ideas that people can take from us uh nba reps you just have to sponsor our podcast the first one uh josh have you seen the mandalorian
0: uh no actually i have not
1: so it's on disney channel i'm sure a lot of people have i actually haven't either uh, but most tv shows and movies are filmed either on set or in front of a green screen right mm-hmm. so disney with mandalorian built and filmed in a huge dome which is completely made of the green screens. So, everywhere the floor, the ceiling, the roof, the ceiling, the roof, the walls, everything is a green screen. So, everything can be made into a visual, into the movie. That's why, you know, it seems so, it's, it's that shit's crazy how, how much they've done there. So, here's my idea build a court in the middle of that dome and make the arena look exactly like 2K. Fake fans, fake scores table, fake score, fake, uh, scoreboard. And I'll go ahead and go into the second idea too. Uh, so with the golf this weekend, uh, we're hearing that it's going to be, and there's a lot more coming up on the interview. Like Josh said with Armin Katayan, great interview. Um, supposedly there's going to be two different broadcasts, one with a lot of commentary and one that's more centered around the mic'd up with uh, sponsor plugs when necessary. Um, so here's my second idea on the secondary broadcast where mic'd up is the main focus as opposed to the standard broadcast camera view. Uh, use the 2k camera view like we're so used to seeing from 2k at the top of the key
0: yeah if you're using the broadcast camera view then you're basically a communist because no one uses that anymore it's two it's a bonus
1: in the 2k tournament right who was using it
0: yeah oh well sorry <laughs> oh
1: yeah <laughs>
0: <laughs> didn't uh didn't mean for that way uh but um yeah it's it's no it's no good no one use no one plays that way no one good at the game plays that way uh, 2k is the only camera mode that you can use and even think about being good at the game
1: all right yep so those were two ideas disney take them run with them implement them uh mandalorian type 2k setting and then the uh secondary broadcast mic'd up with the uh, 2k camera view let's get into another headline josh what do you got
0: uh, so next, uh, there was a NASCAR race that we talked about. There was a NASCAR uh, well, race.
1: You know how much I love NASCAR, Josh. I know.
0: You, I know this excites you, but uh, me and some of the fans out there, uh, some of our listeners, really enjoy NASCAR. Um, so the the race is actually pretty intense uh, on what is it, Wednesday night. Um, mm-hmm. Things got heated on the course. Uh, you know, they had a little bit of a delay because of the rain. They went ahead and we're going through it anyway. So. Prior to the race, drivers had to travel by themselves, uh, go through individual medical testing for uh, temperature, and, you know, the, uh, they had to go through the, the health screenings to be able to come in. They had to isolate after they got into the facility, and all of them were required to wear face masks. you know, obviously taking all the precautions. Um fans were limited. Only one Fox sports broadcaster was in the, in the pit. Uh, All the other ones were in a place in North Carolina, um, doing it from a station. So this was a completely different feel than normal. Um, so, so getting into the actual race. So let's stay right here for a minute.
1: Uh, this is why I want the, uh, NBA to implement what Mark Cuban's idea was for a hotel, California idea, um, as opposed to Disney, you know, put everyone in a hotel, including, uh, reporters, um, commentators, you know, everybody officials. So no one has to be, uh, you know, masked up. Nobody has to be like, you know, social distance, things, that things like that, because we're already quarantined for two or three weeks. And now we're all in this hotel together. Uh, but go on.
0: So getting to the race, um, it was a, it was a bit of a battle there for a little while. Um, obviously the the big thing out of this weekend is the the crash that happened i don't know if you've got to hear about it yet kyler now i saw i saw kyle bush freak
1: out about it so or well, no i'm sorry he, he it was chase elliot who freaked out kyle bush had wrecked him huh
0: well so so whoa whoa we don't that's kyle bush accidentally misjudged the gap that he was trying yeah. to, to shoot there with chase elliot uh Kyle sent out a tweet apologizing to him and his team. He would never do anything malicious like that. Full confidence and belief and faith in Kyle Busch's um, not wanting to to potentially injure anyone. Uh, he has the utmost respect for Chase Elliott. Uh, yeah, there were a lot like,
1: of just like when I'm at Sonic and uh, they they give me that ice cream and I when I obviously ordered just just a water.
0: It, exactly. So. With 28 laps to go, Elliott's in second place behind Denny Hamlin. That's when Bush tried to sneak in right there behind him, you know, try to get in that little gap, misjudged it, spins him out, almost comes back into traffic and gets hit. Yeah, it was almost really bad. Um, yeah, he crashed into the inside wall. Uh, so Chase Elliott waits for him around the uh, the next curve and just gives him the bird, flips him off, tells him he's number one. Uh, so, obviously, it's hilarious. Um, You know, if you're watching this kind of – because he was okay. Then eventually security was called over to the pit because his crew was standing on the wall staring at Kyle, and Kyle had a couple of his guys standing there. Uh, Everyone was told to clear out and disperse, disperse. And then obviously Denny Hamlin became the eventual winner of the race because with 20 laps to go, he only had to hold off for nine laps after that caution. Um, So whenever that happened, he just had to hold on to his lead, and he did. And uh, they cut the – the race short at 20 laps because of the rain and the weirdest phrasing that NASCAR uses is they lost the track.
1: Yeah, so this uh that that made my night. So this actually uh was very reminiscent of our boy Bryson DeChambeau. Um it was at the uh, Hazel I believe for the US Open and uh just it was a it was tough, man. It was the pin locations were tough. The obviously the greens there are just treacherous and bryson came out after the round he said you know they lost the course they lost the golf course they they don't have control of it um you know it's not fun out there and uh, you know that's just hilarious so uh and this was um he's a spotter for jimmy johnson so earl barbin he's actually uh he says nascar feels like they lost the track so they're bringing the cars to pit road for now 20 laps remain in the event and they called it then so that is just that's hilarious i mean i feel like it's obviously a lot more understandable in nascar uh, you know, when you think about it, just because they're driving, you know, really, really fast on a track and heavy machinery and, you know, golf golfers are on a, on a course in, in the sun, but, uh, it's it really, really funny to hear phrases like that.
0: Yeah. It's, I, I it really made me chuckle. I just heard they lost the track and I was like, where'd it go? You know, is asphalt coming up, but what, <laughs> what's happening. Um, so one last quote that I'll, I'll use about, or I'll say about this, uh, they're upset. They're mad. Bush said, I'm not just going to fix it, and we're going to go have ice cream tomorrow. Obviously, they're going to dwell on it. Obviously, they're going to have to dwell on it, and the repercussions I'm sure I'm going to have later down the road. So he's basically just like, you know, nothing I can do about it now. I misjudged the gap. It was an accident. They probably have hard feelings,
1: and we'll see what happens. All right, Josh, this is way too much NASCAR talk for me. What else you got? So
0: the the last thing I'll get into here is the man in the arena – the we, the listeners asked for it and they were received and they received a nine part documentary over Tom Brady and his career. The legacy that is Tom Brady.
1: So this is big news, Josh. Um it's rumored to come in 2021. ESPN is putting out the nine part docuseries, like you said, following his nine Super Bowls. So uh, you know, this is really big news, but this uh I think is going to rival in comparison to the big news going to come from Burst Your Bubble tomorrow. Coming later in this pod um, about another docu series. I mean, if you listen to Monday's episode, you heard me call for one, um, and you could say, you know, the, I call or the people called for it, and it's been delivered on.
0: Yeah, this is huge. You know, everyone everyone's been speculating over the past week after the Jordan doc ended, who would be the next individual with that with the documentary series about them to the same kind of level to the same thing that you know Jordan had. And the thing I think is interesting about Tom Brady is he's still playing football. Yeah. So it's not like he's retired and this is 20 years after the fact. You know, he's a, a month or two uh, out of – every my days run together now for the quarantine, but he's a, day, a month or two out of New England. And this documentary is coming out, remember, 2021. So,
1: it, it's, Oh, that's so, that's so legendary, though, after he wins the Super Bowl this year when, you know, ESPN is going to run the 10th episode and then they'll have – it'll be a full 10-episode 10, 10 series just like Jordan's. Well, that's sure hope so.
0: It's it's definitely gonna be interesting on how they what aspects of this they frame, how far they're gonna go into uh which obviously they're gonna to have to address the things like uh deflate gate and the suspension and things like that. So definitely looking forward to the Tom Brady documentary. There'll be a lot of news and speculation coming out about that within the next year.
1: Yep. Sure are right about that. Uh Josh, let's go ahead and get into the interview with Armin. Uh like I said, this is a great interview with Mr. Kate and he is a, a wonderful individual, a really fun really fun interview, really fun conversation, really great stories. And uh, stick around after for some prop bets. Uh, stick around. You'll join me in the Degenerates the Den. We'll pick out our, pay, our favorite prop bets for the coming weekend. Um, besides that, Josh, do you have an ad for us?
0: Kyler, I know how much we both have loved what Anchor has given us as a podcasting platform. Ladies and gents, if you haven't heard of Anchor yet, you're missing out. Most importantly, it's free. Anchor gives you the ability to edit and upload your podcast directly from your phone to get anywhere you can get your podcast. Apple Music, Spotify, it'll be there. You can make money from your podcast with minimum listeners. It's literally everything you need to make a podcast in one place. Go download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started today.
1: Uh, Joining us today, 11-time Emmy winner, 5-time New York Number one bestseller, um, including the reason he's here today, his book, Tiger Woods. Armin Katayan, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure, guys. So uh, we're huge fans of your career. So we wanted to get into that uh, just for a few minutes. That's all right. Sure.
2: Yeah. I Uh, love talking about myself. Actually, I don't. (laughs) So (laughs) I'm one of those few that doesn't really like talking about myself, but I'll, I'll make an exception for sure. Uh,
1: first off, uh, how's, how's quarantine t- treating you? Did you uh, catch the last dance?
2: I, I caught parts of it. Um, it's treating me okay. I feel like everybody else. It's Groundhog Day. You know, every day is sort of like the day before, and you know what tomorrow will probably be. But you know, we're in Connecticut, in Fairfield County, and you know we're kind of in a an epicenter, a hot spot of the virus. There's been I think at least 10,000 cases, positive cases of COVID-19. And we've had more than a thousand deaths um, here in Fairfield, which for those that don't know is about 50 miles from New York city. Um, it encompasses Greenwich, Connecticut, Darien, New Canaan, Westport here in Fairfield. Uh, you know, it, it goes down, um, you know, into Stamford and all that. So it's a, it's a big County, but um you know, we live sort of by the beach and we have had more foot traffic just walking around down here, walking around down here. People I think are, you know, going a little stir crazy, but um, you know, better safe than sorry guys. It's been one of those things where, you know, we've been pretty vigilant about wearing masks. Um, You know, certainly when we go to the grocery store or Home Depot or something like that, but you know, I'm going a little stir crazy, but in the on the positive side, honestly, um, you know, it's allowed me to kind of take a step back and reassess, um, where I'm at, you know, career wise and what I want to do next. And that's been a benefit because, um, you know, I've been talking to people in uh, pretty high level people out in Hollywood and some other places about, um, speaking of the last dance, you know, doing more long form multi part, Um, episodic kind of storytelling so you know there's a there's a silver lining here i think in a lot of ways too and and um so i'm going to try to take advantage of it when when the pandemic finally you know gets to whatever normal is
1: i've definitely got a follow-up question about the uh that docuseries you're wanting to start up Uh, i'll get to that a little bit later in the pod when we're about the tiger woods book um Speaking of The Last Dance, I was going to ask you if you had a, a good Jordan story to kind of break, break some news, make the news round for us.
2: Um, well, I mean, I don't have a, you know, one of the books I did was called Money Players, and it was a, a deep dive with Harvey Ayrton from The New York Times and a, a longtime collaborator of mine at Sports Illustrated, Martin Dardis, who was the magazine's chief criminal investigator. And uh, the book came out in the mid-90s. And I had spent a great deal of time um, investigating, uh, you know, the death of his father and the gambling um, allegations and um, what the NBA did or did not do relative to their investigation into Michael's gambling. And, um, you know, it was very clear to me after spending if months, if you know, weeks, if not months, looking into it, that the league investigation the league's investigation really wasn't much of an investigation at all not surprising given given Michael's stature but um uh you know they they talked to Michael but did they talk to Slim Buller did they talk to Eddie Dow did they talk to any of the law enforcement um agencies in North Carolina the answer was just repeatedly no 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 so um Again, I'm not surprised in terms of um, what their focus was uh, or lack of focus, but, um, you know, I I think you'd have to put quote marks around the word uh, investigation when it came to the NBA. Uh, One of the checks, actually, you know, one was famously to Slim. You know, the one thing I've learned over time is I don't really deal in speculation at all. Um, If I can't. Report it. And if there's not a document involved, um, particularly a court document, uh, you know, in the world that I was living in and still live in to a large degree, it's a pretty high wire. And if you make a mistake, it's a long fall. And I have, you know, kind of zealously guarded um, the reputation that I built up over time in terms of as an investigative reporter. And one of the reasons I think I've been able to sustain the career I have have had, that I have had, is is, is because I'm extremely careful in terms of, um, when I link something together, there better be some really strong connective tissue or it's not going in a story or it's not going in a book.
0: Right. yeah, and you talked about building up your reputation there. So obviously, you know, doing that's got you to where you are. Um, so how's the switch been over to The Athletic? Um, I know that bringing in, it was put out, you know, you had to get a lot of videos put out for the company. So what was your mindset going into,
2: into that new role? Well, with The Athletic, was it was interesting because, um, as as I understand it, uh, prior to us getting involved, um, you know, they had talked to a lot of different entities, um, both in, you know, the Hollywood side of things and in the network side of things and the cable side of things. and you know our our discussions with, and principally was with Alex Mather, one of the two co-founders. Was look, this is there's a level of storytelling that we're going to bring to you. Um, there's a cost associated with that kind of storytelling when you're dealing with network television producers and camera people and multi award-winning um, executive producers. And you know when I was working as the anchor, um, and to their credit, they. Um, they bought into that, and you know what we were able to do, um, beginning really in January of two thousand and, and uh, nineteen, um, was uh, really work towards the launch of in May of of, of nineteen, and since then and up until uh, the athletic recently, I don't know if you guys know this, but they made the decision to shutter the video operation, just as the pandemic was was hitting. Um, our contracts were, um, were up in April uh, of this year. And frankly, I don't think we would have survived in this pandemic world because of the requirements that are needed to put the kind of pieces together that, you know, certainly you have to travel, there's crews, you, you see what it's going on with the networks now. But we, in the end, we produced 40 stories, so it was 400 plus minutes of of video, um, a wide range of work, everything from investigative to uh, series on mental health, behind the scenes at Alabama football, uh, Colin Coward piece, Chris Russo. Mm -hmm. Uh, We're very proud of the work. Um, We just found out uh, not too long ago that one of the three-part pieces that we did called Silent No More, um, telling the story of two women, both that had been sexually assaulted, one who was a, one of the first victims of, of Larry Nasser, The other one who turns out to be, um, became her a psychologist and psychiatrist, uh, had been sexually assaulted when she was in middle school. And that was, a, that was just honored as the Associated Press sports editor's video of the year. So, um, that's what I'm saying is, is that, you know, the decision to curtail the video, um, you know, was, was disappointing to us, but it also, you know, the athletic is still a startup as successful as it is. um, And it's been, I think, extremely successful. uh, They're still under four years in and they're under, um, I think it's fair to say uh, significant pressure to show a profit in 2020. And it wasn't going to, you know, what it was costing them to do our work. um, You know, there wasn't a lot of, um we were a prestige play for them and as much as we helped their brand and as much as we helped raise the i think the journalistic um uh, storytelling level there at a certain point in time the reality set in in terms of cost and so um you know they made the decision to shut it down they've been doing different kinds of work on the site now with more podcast kind of video style podcasting and um I think in the short term, that's what they're going to stay with. And, um, you know, I wish them luck. I think they're, they're, they're a tremendous uh, asset right now in the world of storytelling, and, and we need more of that.
1: I completely agree with you there. And like you said, you know, adding someone like, you know, your prestige adds a journalistic character to that company. 11-time um, Emmy winner, like I mentioned. Um, a couple of those, one about Amari Stoudemire. I love those Suns teams. Um, if you listen to this podcast. You know that uh, one of them Mm -hmm. came um, from the 05 Super Bowl um, in a piece, pregame piece. What do you view as your biggest professional
2: accomplishment? Well, it's interesting, Kyle. You know, I think my biggest professional um, accomplishment has been, I've been doing this for 30 years. You know, I've had a Mm. 30-year career in network television. Before that, I spent seven years at Sports Illustrated. So I've been, uh, you know, I think at the top of my, chosen profession for almost 40 years and you know in the world of network television to be able to have i started in the 80s 89 at world news tonight abc news um to go you know the 80s the 90s uh the 2000s 2010 and now still um you know i'll be doing more network tv stuff i think in the future uh that's a pretty long run and i think the um I think I'm most proud of the fact that i've I've been able to um, I think distinguish myself in a couple different places as a certainly as an investigative reporter for s i, um, on the network television level as a storyteller, and you know, as you mentioned, I've, I think the Tiger Woods book was number eleven on um, four of which had been on the New York Times bestseller list. So the versatility to be able to storytell in a lot of different environments, and even I think back to the eight years I spent on the sidelines for CBS Sports, you know, covering NFL games and doing, um, I think I did seven Final Fours, uh, to be able to tell a story in 15 or 20 seconds from a sideline report is another, uh, you know, piece of the profession, another part of the art form. And so, you know, not necessarily one story, but I think it's the body of work that's stood the test of time is probably what I'm most proud of
0: well I know uh, another one of your uh, professional accomplishments at least one that I uh, I hold the high esteem is the fact that you got Bill Belichick to say more than three or four words at a time that, <laughs> that interview with him was yeah. uh, was a lot of fun so how did you uh, how did that come about you actually getting him to open up because obviously we know Bill is a man who doesn't speak very much
2: well, that's a good question, and I think there's a there's a you know a message there that I think your audience, particularly young journalists, might benefit from is, um, you know, there's one thing you can control in our business, and that's that's your good name, and I believe that that's the probably the most precious thing that you um, have control over is how you go about your business how you conduct yourself as a professional. And I mean that word very specifically being a professional because we work in a profession as much as in, um, modern day media times. Uh, um, we take one shot after another from the white house on down. Um, so what happens is, is that you gain the trust of individuals like Bill Belichick or Tom Izzo or, or Nick Saban or, um, other people that I've been able to interview over the years because they watch how you work. If you say A and you do B, um, you're gonna get away with that once or twice or three times in your career, but you're not gonna make a career out of saying one thing and doing something else. And so when you give your word on something, or you say you're gonna be someplace, or you say somebody says to you, is that off the record? Um, You keep it off the record, In the NFL and at the highest levels of sport, um, coaches, um, they watch and they talk. And so when um, Bill Belichick wanted to say something about Spygate, um, he chose to speak to me because he A, he trusted me that I uh, I wasn't going to make it about Armin Katayan. I was going to allow Bill Belichick to answer some very direct questions, which he fully was aware of, which is what I was going to do, but he knew I wasn't gonna grandstand the interview. And so when I wanted to get behind the scenes with Nick Saban at Miami when he was there the first year, and I wanted to do a multi-part piece for the NFL today about what it's like to be a rookie coach in in the National Football League, well, guess who Nick called? He called Bill because they had been together for years in Cleveland. And what did Bill say to Nick? As I understand it, Bill said, you can trust him. And there's no higher compliment in my world and in my life, professional life, than when somebody calls somebody up and says, hey, um, Armand Katayan wants to do something with me. What do you think? And they say, yes, I would do it because you can trust him. And that's where these things happen. They don't happen overnight. Uh, They don't happen because you have some hot take on something. Doesn't happen because um, you're trying to make a career out of someone else's misery. It happens because you go about your business um, uh, like a professional. Um, And I think that goes a long way. And it has for me, I can tell you that.
0: That's a a very good point. And that's, you know, especially someone like Bill Belichick who's so guarded and reserved, you know, it really speaks to the testament of, of you and your ability to, to be professional and act in that manner for him to, to be able to trust you like that and to continue to,
2: to put your name out there. Well, the other thing too, you know, is, is, and as I was thinking about this is that, you know, I don't waste people's time it's, can, one thing you learn and I've learned it over the years is, you know, you treat people respectfully. So if I'm, if Bill Belichick is going to sit down with me, I am going to be prepared out the wazoo um, with the questions that are, I think appropriate for how much time I have and what the format is. If it's 60 minutes, you know, Nick knows when he sits down for a 60 minutes interview that it's going to be at least an hour. But I'm not going to waste his time by asking questions of which A, I already know the answers to in terms of, well, you tell me about your where you grew up. Well, I know he grew up in West Virginia. And so if I'm going to ask him something, I'm going to ask him something very specifically about his father and his mother and what it was like to grow up in that part of West Virginia. So I'm going to come prepared. Um, and I think that's really important too, because what you're trying to build with your interview subject um, is not an interview, but it's a conversation. Mm-hmm. And that's conversation is built upon um, moments. And those moments are built upon the fact that you are very careful about uh, the framing of the questions and the sequencing of the questions. And one of the things you talked about the last dance Jason Harrah, who is the director of it, who I worked with way back when at at Real Sports, one of the most fascinating interviews he did was the amount of preparation that went into the questions for Michael Jordan Mm -hmm. and the sequencing of those questions. And he wasn't going to start out with something very basic because he wanted to engage Michael right away. And that technique that he used time and time again of showing Michael previous interviews on an iPad was a stroke of genius because it allowed Michael to react to those things in a way that was really visceral and honest. And, you know, that's not something that just pops up into your head um, 15 minutes before you sit down with the interview subject. The amount of work that went into the preparation for all the interviews that Jason did or what Ezra Edelman did when he did the OJ doc or what 60 Minutes correspondents do prior to sitting down with, you know, huge profile subjects, um, you know, you never see that. That's not on the screen, but it it's what makes those those docs and those pieces so extraordinary. Um, it's the secret sauce, so to speak, of um, of the interviews. And um, you know, it's not for everybody. A lot of people don't want to spend the time. A lot of people don't have the capability um, of processing a lot of that information in their head in real time as two cameras are rolling. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot that goes on with this stuff. I used to laugh a lot when somebody would say to me on the sidelines, you know, would yell to me, oh, I can do what you're doing. And I would say to them, well, yeah, come on down here and, you know, throw on the headset, grab the microphone, have a producer in your ear have the game going on behind you have to be able to sequence into what, what, um, you know, Jim Nance or, or Phil Sims was about to say, and tell me a story with a beginning and a middle and an end in 20 seconds and then go. Yeah. Good luck with that. You know? Yeah. So, you know, it's an art form, you know, and I'm not saying I'm the best at it, but I I will say that I put a lot of time and effort into it. Mm -hmm. So
1: uh, Armin Katayan, I'm with this uh, five-time New York number one bestseller, uh, including Tiger Woods, the reason we're here to talk today. Uh, tell us how you got on board the project and what the research and interview process was like. Uh, I know you talked to over 200 people, you and uh, co-author Jeff Bridges. Um, what was the biggest challenge in that? Uh, and who were you most happy to have gotten as an interview? And who was the one person you really wanted to, but
2: just couldn't make it happen? Um, well, that's like, that's a multi-part question there. So um let me start um just one correction, not uh, Jeff Bridges, but Jeff Benedict, uh Benedict, co-author. And um well, it was uh it was interesting. Jeff and I had were just had come off of the system, uh a mm-hmm. two-year project, a really deep dive into big time college football, and we weren't really looking for another big uh mountain to climb. And our agent Richard Pine uh, suggested Tiger Woods and we're like, well, God, there's been a lot of books written about Tiger Woods. Why would, why would we want to do that? But then the more we looked at it, we realized, yes, there had been a lot of books, but all of those books were written in very specific periods of time of Mm -hmm. Tiger's life, either prior to turning pro, just after turning pro, um, right after he had that huge run in 2000, um, and then again, after the, uh, the car crash in 2009, there was another book that came out, a couple of books that came out in 2010, but there had never been this overarching 360 degree deeply uh, reported biography of his life. And the more we looked at it, the more interesting it became to us. And so, you know, by comparison, when we wrote the proposal that sold the system, that was 60 pages long. The proposal that we wrote for Tiger uh, that sold to Simon and Schuster was five pages long. Um, but we were, by that time, you know, our bona fides had been established. And um, the fact that Jeff and I wanted three years for the project uh, was appealing to Simon and Schuster because it it spoke to the kind of reporting that we expected that we were going to have to do. And You mentioned, you know, 250 interviews. Um, Yeah, it's not like every one of those people was waiting by their phone for us Mm -hmm. to call and say, God, I can't wait to talk to you and tell you about Tiger Woods. I mean, we had to read every book that had been written about him. We got access to Sports Illustrated's library, which had thousands of stories about Tiger Woods, which we read and annotated. And we built a timeline of his life. And then through all that work, all that spade work, we were able to pinpoint people that um, had been part of Tiger's life, if only for a few weeks, sometimes a few days, sometimes a few months, sometimes a year before they um, left the stage or were were discarded. And we went about trying to find those people. And we had a couple of really sharp reporters working with us, researchers, Tim Bella being one of them, um, who were able to find these people and then we had to convince um, a number of people um, that we weren't out to quote unquote get Tiger, we were out to understand Tiger. And there's a very big difference. We, we were really driven by two main questions, who is Tiger Woods and what's the price of genius? And once we, once we agreed that, that were, those were gonna be the defining factors of the book, we went about spending another year um, really starting to piece together the interviews and, uh, Jeff did a tremendous job on his own. Um, I think, I think he would say that perhaps the best interview, the most insightful interview that, that he got was Dina Gravel, who was Tiger's first girlfriend and the, the arc of, of their first love and the, uh, torturous breakup that was instigated by his parents. Uh, when he was up at Stanford. And I think for me, um, um, well, there were a lot of them, but I think Mark O'Meara for me was really interesting because he was, you know, he was hard to get, hard to gain his trust. And I actually flew out to California and then drove to Arizona to a golf tournament where Mark was playing. And I caught up with him at the Pro-Am and walked up to him and he's like, Armin, what are you doing here? I said, well, funny you should ask. Uh, I'm working on a book on Tiger. And he said, you are. And I said, yeah, would you mind if I kind of walked and talked with you for a few holes? And he was so gracious and was very, I thought open about his relationship with Tiger and the, and how it had changed over time. Um, and then you get little people like, um you no know, Peggy Miller, who uh, the woods stayed at her house at Augusta for years. And, Um, the story about, um, you know, what happened to their house, her house, and um, how the the complete lack of appreciation that Earl and Tiger and and their group showed to not only the house, but to to Peggy. Um, So there were, I mean, 250, I think every one of them um, for us felt special because uh, we were asking people to dig into the you know in many cases their private conversations and private interactions with tiger but you know in the end we wrote a book that i think is going to stand the test of time um it is going to be the the founding uh foundation of of a, an upcoming hbo four hour uh, two two hour films uh based on on our book and um you know, I, I think there's going to be, there's been interest in Hollywood and for a scripted series based on the book. So, um, you know, I think for me, that book is as proud of personal accomplishment because Jeff and I poured, uh, I can't even tell you how many thousands of hours into it. And so even though we were paid a nice amount of money, uh, we laughed and said in the end, we were probably working for minimum wage or less than minimum wage, but In the end, the reviews were sensational. And I have to say, it was really interesting. The book has really resonated with women um, because at its heart, it's not really a golf book or a book about golf. It's a book about genius. And it's a book about relationships. And it's a book about, um, you know, particularly with women, they see between Tiger and his mother, um, Tiger and Elon, Tiger and um, other women in his life, Tiger and Dina, Um, it's very relatable um, for the non-sports, non-golf kind of person. And that, you know, that was a, um, that was done purposely by Jeff and I because we just felt it was bigger than a a sports biography.
0: So who, uh, other than Tiger Woods, uh, who is the one person you didn't get to interview that you, looking back, wish you would have?
2: Well, I didn't really, I didn't just to get to the Tiger Woods question, um, you know, we certainly asked and we were, you know, pretty much summarily dismissed by Tiger's people. But in the end, I didn't feel like I was really needed to talk to Tiger because when you when you go through 350 press conferences that he had and you have those press conferences annotated by subject matter. So if I was interested in Tiger talking about his father, I could search the documents in a certain way to, to pull up all his comments that he made about his dad. Um, that's a good question. I think, um, I mean, I talked to Barkley, I I think to talk to Jordan, it would have been interesting. I know that Wright Thompson got him for a big profile piece. He did, um, on tiger for ESPN, the magazine, um, and I love Wright. I think he's one of the very best, if not the best storyteller in the business right now. Um, I mean, we got Hank Haney, we got Butch Harmon. Um, I, I, I don't really, I can't really say there's anybody out there off the top of my head that I wish we would have been able to talk to, um, that we didn't. I think we covered every single aspect of of Tiger's life, you know, up and past the crash. Uh, So I'm going to, I'm just going to say, I'll, I'll, I'll stand on what we did. I don't think there's anybody that actually, you know what, now that I think about it, um, I chased Phil Mickelson for a long time Mm -hmm. and Phil was very gracious. And he kept saying, Armin, love to talk to you. Love to talk to you, but I can't talk to you now. You know, I'd see him at tournaments. And then I really worked really hard to get him away from, um, the tour when it was in a quiet period, I think I would have loved to have been able to talk to like a Ricky Fowler or a Justin Thomas or mm. a Phil that were close to Tiger. Um, and even some people in his very inner circle, you know, Brian Bell, Jerry chain. Um, but th- you're just not going to get those people. They're so loyal to Tiger that um, it would be s- considered treasonous if, and you would be excommunicated from the House of woods if you if you spoke to a reporter and there's reasons why those people have never talked um, Joanna Jagoda his first real college girlfriend um, you know after college that's another one so as I was I think about it, there were people that um, would have been great to get their um, uh, reminiscence and and insight into tiger but You know, there, I don't know, there's a reason that Joanna Jagoda has never talked, whether there's an an NDA involved or whether she's just the kind of woman that says, you know what, that was private, I'm going to keep it private. Um, But you have to respect that in many ways, too. So um, we didn't badger anybody. Um, It's not to say we weren't persistent, but when a no is a no, you kind of know it.
1: Yeah. So I think part of, uh, you know, you told the story of how you got Mark O'Mara to get on the book. You know, a lot of that goes towards your reputation, like you were talking about earlier here. Respected who you were, you know, your journalistic integrity. So he, you know, felt comfortable talking to you, especially at a course setting like that. Um, How did, you know, as such a high, pristine journalist, how did you handle the criticism of the book, uh, most notably from the TGR camp itself?
2: I kind of laughed at it. I mean, I didn't expect that they were gonna throw out a bouquet of roses to us and say, God, guys, thanks a lot for really revealing who our, our client really is. Um, and that means Mark Steinberg and at the time, Glenn Greenspan, who was Tiger's um, big spokesman. I mean, I could have written the press release that they issued when the book came out, which was yeah. A, said it was full of egregious errors and two, it had dated material. Um, there's a lot of things that book was dated was not one of them and filled with egregious errors was another thing that it wasn't. So it was, I don't know, 170,000 words, 400 pages. Were there statistical mistakes? Um, Were there some uh, misspellings or small typographical errors? Yes. All of which were probably less than a dozen that were all corrected in subsequent editions of the Of the book but it was so predictable and having dealt with them over a year and a half period where it was acrimonious from the start and frankly it was um, we found it to be disrespectful Um, you know between the two of us Jeff and I had written 25 nonfiction books I think at least six of them that had been on the New York Times bestseller list And some of the sort of the condescending language and the journalistic lessons that we were being offered by Glenn Greenspan and Mark Steinberg were frankly insulting to us. Mm -hmm. And all they had to do was to give us a professional no. Um, Instead, they chose to try to intimidate us and um, I don't know what the word would be, embarrass us in some way, shape or form. And it was, it just, there was no need for that. And so when they came out and, you know, after the book came out and said what they said, I was like, well, that's so predictable. And you notice that they didn't say boo-hoo after that. They made one statement. And once the book gained the momentum that it did and the praise that it did, they did the smart thing, which was not to say anything.
0: So kind of going into the book here for a second. um, Obviously you talk about Earl Woods. He didn't just train Tiger to be the best golfer in the world. He was – he was training him to become or getting him to break through a racial barrier. He said that he was going to change the world more than Elsa Mandela, Ali, and many others. Uh, so what do you think attributed to Tiger's uh, attitude more? The pressure of being a cultural phenomenon or the
2: culture of going out and winning majors? Well, Tiger's focus was was never on being a cultural phenomenon. I think that was the result of Tiger's greatness. Um, Tiger mania, um, Earl's pronouncements you know particularly in the Gary Smith now the iconic mm-hmm. the chosen one Gary Smith article for SI um Tiger's focus was always very single-minded and that was a winning tournaments but more importantly winning majors and his sight set on breaking Jack's record of of of, of 18 um and I think the Um, Whatever happened around that um, was a cultural, social, racial, um, economic, financial phenomenon that the world has not seen um, and certainly hadn't seen. um, And I would dare say in the history of sport, I think Tiger in many ways lived up to uh, maybe not the most outlandish Uh, exclamations of Earl Woods but I think you're pretty hard-pressed to argue against the fact that he changed the face of golf and he changed the game of golf and he was the first one billion dollar athlete and he was a machine when it came to winning events in ways that people had never experienced before whether you're talking about you know the Masters by 12 or Pebble Beach by 15 or the 2008 open on a broken leg. Um, I mean, he's, he's one of a kind, Uh, you know, we kind of likened him to, you know, Mozart and Beethoven and people like that. Um, which makes him a, you know, a phenomenal figure to try to understand. But I think, you know, that only recently, and I think subsequent the DUI arrest in May of 2017, um, you've seen now a different tiger, um, uh, a Tiger Woods that has, I think, looked inside himself, decided what kind of person he wanted to be, um, the kind of father that he wanted to be. um, And uh, without question, has become, I think, more appreciative and more grateful and more, uh, um, more human than he's ever been. And I think that's a reason that people have, connected with him in ways that they may not have connected with him when he was, you know, driving a truck through the tour. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: You talk about driving the truck through the, I mean, I would kind of compare the PGA to the NBA um, in the sense that around the late nineties, early two thousands on the talent floor, you know, the talent level, the floor was a little lower than it is now. There was a little depleted and Tiger thrived in that. He dominated um, in that 10 year span, 99 to 09. Uh, 64 wins out of 186 tournaments he entered. Um, yeah, he won 13, majors, 13 major championships in that 10-year run. Um, if Tiger is that dominant in today's PGA climate each week,
2: does he still amass that huge number? No, I don't think so. I mean, I think you know you have to look at who Tiger was beating in those days. And, yes, it was, I don't think it was nearly as deep as it is now. But you still had Ernie Ells. You had Duvall for a while. You had Phil. You had Sergio came on and off the, mm-hmm. um, the stage a little bit. You had mm-hmm. VJ for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, so there was this core group that could con- compete with Tiger, contend with Tiger. Um, and Tiger certainly knew who those people were. Um, he had an absolute radar um, screen up you could almost hear it beeping at times like beep, beep, beep. Oh, I got to worry about the ball. Beep, beep, beep. Oh, who's this guy, this 19 year old named Garcia. Um, you know, Phil was always sort of the, you know, the U boat out in the waters and, and would be trolling around and Tiger would always say that, you know, if he won the first one, meaning first major, he was going to be very difficult, you know, in subsequent majors. And I think that has proven to be true. But now I think that, a, a Tiger at, in his prime against a, a Koepka, uh Justin Thomas, a Jordan Spieth in his prime, a Dustin Johnson, um, even now some of the young guns, um, um, you know, Matthew Wolf, Shoffley, people like that. I think it would have been for a prolonged period of time would have been a phenomenal um, set of, uh, majors that he would have competed against. But, and I say but, look what happened in the in the Masters in, in um, 19. You know, he waited. He, they got into the hunt. Um, it's Sunday at Augusta. They're on the back nine, and all of a sudden, you know, the restrictive throat disease takes hold, and you watch Molinari, uh, Kepka. Tony Finau, um, Patrick Cantlay, Shafley—they all have a—you a, 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 know—even Ian Poulter there for a while—they all had an opportunity, but you know, push comes to shove, moments of crisis. Tiger was able to do what he what he did um, in virtually every single major or tournament he played in, including, except for Y.E. Yang, um, he closed him out. And, um, you know, August on Sunday, it's, there's a David Duvall and I'll paraphrase him because I don't want to say exactly what he said, but he said, you know, these guys would always talk about, I can't wait to get into a major on a Sunday, go head to head with, um, with Tiger and see what it's like. And, and uh, Duvall who had done that with him, said essentially the heck you do because you have no idea what you're getting into. And I don't think those guys, you know, I mean, Kepka made a couple of putts on 17 and 18 that even I I was one, I was watching the replay of the masters recently. I mean, he made a putt on 18 that would have got him within one of tiger. He had a putt on 18. He didn't Mm -hmm. make it. It was the biggest pull. I think Brooks has ever had certainly. in. and Jim Nance said it. He goes, I've never seen him take a stroke like that and that's just nerves i think you know you can talk around it as much as you want but the fact of the matter is i think he had about a nine footer or something like that and he didn't even touch the hole so um it's uh it's an interesting you know when you step onto the stage with tiger woods in a in a major you you better have all your buttons buttoned up
1: yeah it seems like any year that tiger's been healthy his worst finish at, at august has been uh probably tied for fourth but uh, yeah. you kind of you kind of talked about that radar that he kind of has on the course with his competitors and everything that's going on. How much would you attribute that to the Navy SEAL training
2: that his dad instilled at you know before he could even remember it? Oh, I think it has a lot to do with it. I think I think Tiger's ability to see things on the course, um his the hours of practice that he put in, um, you know, his physical stature, uh, Earl's um, what did he call it? Uh, the Earl Woods finishing school, Mm -hmm. um, that he was working with Tiger, um, stepping in his line, jingling his coins. And as you know, as we reported, using language that was much more coarse than what, you know, originally it was sort of a, a Cinderella, uh, kind of a story, but it became very much of a seals kind of story. Um, as it turned out, and then don't forget you know his mother tita i mean she's the one with the killer instinct she was the one that said to him you step on their throat you beat them in a way that they that they never forget and um i think she's the one that instilled that you know that indomitable will in t- inside tiger and so when you combine the the athletic genius and his sort of ability to see things on the course that very, very few golfers could see with this indomitable will and this killer instinct. Um, I mean, that's, you know, like you said, that's an amazing statistic to win what nearly 33% of the golf tournaments that you enter. Think about what happens now when Spieth went on a run and, you know, would win three or four tournaments, you know, in a two month stretch, everybody was anointing him The next tiger woods, mm-hmm. Justin Thomas would go on a little bit of a run. DJ would go on a run. All of a sudden people are talking in terms of, Oh, is he the next tiger woods? There is no next tiger woods. There isn't. I mean, there's a lot of great players, but to dominate a sport the way that he did for the better part of a decade. Um, it's just ridiculous. I mean, what, what he did in, over that stretch of time from like beginning, like you said, you could start in 97 and you can work your way up to 2009. Um, but certainly from the 99 to 2009, um, I mean, if, 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 if he wasn't in the hunt in a tournament, that was news. Yeah. So you talked
0: about, uh, you know, obviously the masters of 2019 and his run with Uh, Brooks missing a putt by more than he ever has so I think a lot of that is just the the following that Tiger has because you have to feel so bad about yourself if you make a great putt say on 14 and then you hear everyone cheering because Tiger just had a great shot off the tee box his crowd is way lighter than yours you know it just takes a lot of energy out of you and out of you know a lot of confidence
2: out so you know that definitely attributes to some of the nerves out there um oh for sure I mean you know you there's a lot of guys just didn't want to play with him, you know, because he wasn't above, you know, gamesmanship too. He knew that yeah. if he made a putt on a green and he walked off that green and headed towards the next tee, that the crowd was going to follow him while you were still lining up a putt that you had to make for birdie um, or to stay in the hunt. So some of that stuff on um, like Finau said, it was it was just so classic, you know. Tony is um, it's they're in the final pairing together, at the Masters. Tony doesn't really know what to say, so he says right before they're getting ready to tee off. So how are the kids doing? Tiger mm-hmm. says in essence, they're fine. That was the last thing that Tiger Woods said to Tony Finau at the Masters on Sunday, until he won the event and Tony came up to him and gave him a hug and then Tiger said something to him. He just closed everybody out. He's in his own world. He's not there to be your friend. He's not there. He has no interest in you. You know, what you are is an obstacle in the way of his winning a tournament. And for, from the time he pulled on a pair of pants and walked onto a golf course. That's the way that he approached the game. Um, you know, you look at some of the people that he beat um, in dramatic matches. Um, particularly during his amateur days, they were terrific amateur players that should have been, um, yeah, should have been great professionals or at least, you know solid professionals and they, they out. never turned pro, yep. you know, or they did not have anywhere near the kind of professional career that I'm sure that they envisioned. So, you know, like when Tito was said, you take their heart in a lot of ways, that's what Tiger did. He took guys hearts on that course. And, you know, there were very, very few that had the intestinal fortitude Phil being one of them, that we're willing to, to step into the cauldron with Tiger on a Sunday afternoon at the Players or, or at the Masters or a U.S. Open or the British Open or the PGA. Um, you know, Bob May shot, if, I, if I'm remembering this right, at 2000 PGA at Valhalla, he shot 31 on the back nine. And guess mm-hmm. what Tiger shot? 31 on the back nine. So, I mean, he wasn't going to break and 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 he would do everything he could to break you and think of all the guys that you know fell victim to that over time yeah
1: uh, one of my favorite clips from the 2019 masters is when brooks is on 17t and he, uh, tiger almost hole makes the hole in one on 16 and he leans <laughs> know, over to <laughs> see what everyone's cheering about uh, you know he's definitely yeah. thinking about that the rest of the, the rest of the two holes oh
2: yeah that's a great i just watched uh, I, I was fortunate enough i've been watching the what's called the fine cut of the, of the film, mm-hmm. the doc. And that's exactly what you just said, is, is that Tiger hits that tee shot on 16 and it's drifting down towards the hole. And Brooks has got his head up, turning to the right, looking to see what that roar is all about. And you knew it was, you know, you knew it was Tiger because there's a different kind of roar. Mm-hmm. Uh, but second of all, you know, they're thinking, oh, Jesus, did he just, you know, stuff this thing in there? And sure as hell he did. You know, it was, uh, I mean, you talk about a clutch shot. You know, that was almost a hole in one.
1: Very close. So, Armin Kattan, I'm with us, uh, of, co-author of the Tiger Woods book. Um, it's, it's got his face on the cover. If you're wondering which Tiger Woods book, you can't miss it. Uh, find it anywhere you buy your books. Um, so, let's talk about the match a little bit this weekend. Uh, you talked about Phil a little bit. Say he's one of the only guys who can step in that, that spotlight with Tiger and really compete and, you know, not really think about it. Uh, what's your prediction for this weekend?
2: Well, I'm just I'm just gonna have fun watching uh, you know Brady and Peyton go at each other because those guys can talk some shit. And mm-hmm. it's gonna be it's I mean, especially Peyton. Um he's the best at it. And I think the I it'll be fun to see how they handle the the big stage, you know, because I know they've been playing a lot down there at Metalist, and um so I think they'll probably be pretty comfortable given that there's not going to be huge crowds or much of a crowd at all. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, it's funny, I was talking to somebody about the prior Phil Tiger match and somebody is very close to Phil and they said, you know, Phil was practicing for that early, uh, the first one. And, you know, there was what 10 million on the line, 9 million on the line. And, um, Phil won, you know, Phil won it. And as the person said to me, Phil could use that money. Tiger didn't need the money. You know, it was one of those deals where, you know, it was, it was really important. I think financially for Phil to, to take that kind of pot. Whereas Tiger, you know, I think Tiger's got more money than he'll ever spend in seven lifetimes, but um, you know, I don't know. I'm just going to be entertained. I think it'll be really good. I wasn't so much, you know, I didn't spend a lot of time watching the previous one with, you know, with Ricky and and DJ and rory and and Matthew Wolf, but it was still it was still entertaining. Wow. Um, it is live, and um I think this one will be pretty fun because you know, Phil's been playing a lot. These things mean a lot to Phil. how much they mean to Tiger, you know, whatever he says, you probably have to take that with a grain of salt. But I think the buddy-buddy thing, I think this is a really smart idea. Because I don't think there's other than Michael, um, if they could have got him to play. Um, who else LeBron? I mean, you're talking about two of the biggest four names, I think, in the world of sport right now. If you eliminate Tiger and you take Phil out and you just say, okay, you've got um, or and even if you keep Tiger in, you say, okay, Tiger LeBron, I think you're going Peyton and Tom, and they're interchangeable as far as. Mm-hmm. you know, iconic sports figures and um <clears throat> you know that can sell tickets so to speak in terms of, of people wanting to watch. So um I think it's gonna be a lot of fun. It'll it'll be a it'll be a an interesting day to say the least.
0: Yeah it'll be good to have that those little rivalries out there too, you know, with the comparisons between Brady and Manning for the goat comparison and then obviously
2: Phil and Tiger. It's gonna yeah. be a, a wonderful dynamic. Did you see have you guys seen the Peyton places? Oh and yeah. And the one with Tom with Tom and Peyton at Jim's house out in Pebble. They it's hysterical. Them. It's so yeah. funny.
0: They're so good it's, at it. Peyton is so it, good they, at
2: being the, the the dry witty humor. No kidding. And and I think that they're, you know, the competition that they had on the football field um it hasn't left either one of them. You know, even though Tom's still playing, Peyton in a lot of ways is still playing too. You know, he still has that mindset of whatever it is, whatever competing against, I'm going to try to beat you. And he does, he has that deadpan sense of humor that is so cutting and it's so quick that I think if, you know, if if they're allowed to kind of do what they want to do, it'll be hysterical mm-hmm. between, between and, and Tiger's got, I mean, as good a, you know, that sort of rapier like cutting wit um, to the point where, you know, I know he said stuff to Phil in the past where Phil just did not have a, a response. You know, it's just, it just cuts right to the core. And you're like, oh, elaborate
1: on right? that. <laughs> <laughs> no.
2: <laughs> yeah, no, I don't think so.
1: So yeah, I completely agree with you there. If they can do it, they, uh, you know, kind of, no limits, you know, obviously some of it's, it's going to be on TNT, but you know, if they could, you know, be a little freer with what they, what they say, I think it's going to be, especially Peyton and Tom, uh, their football personality is really going to shine on the golf course. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So it'll be a lot of fun. Definitely. And it's live sports. So we're not going to complain. Um, so we talked a little bit earlier about the HBO series that's in the works. Uh, what
2: news can we break today about that? Well, not much. Cause I'm, mm-hmm. I'm under, uh, I'm under a strict, um, that's what I My think. lips are sealed kind of thing. Um, yeah. I can tell you that um, it's scheduled to come out in the fall. Um, don't be surprised if it's, you know, airs right around the Masters in November. I think if, mm. if you're HBO, that's the most, uh, that's the smartest and the best place to do it. Um, I can tell you this. I've seen it now several times and, and including this morning when I just watched uh, the, the final two hours it's a fabulous job. I mean, it's, uh, it's Alex Gibney's Jigsaw Productions, uh, Oscar winning documentarian. Um, Matt Hamachek and and Matt Heineman are the two principal directors of it. Um, They have spent countless hours, uh, not only, you know, finding people and uh, that we've helped them find and connecting with them and then getting them to sit down uh, for interviews, but there's some you know, there's some real big names in it too. I can, I mean, Nick Faldo is in it. Brian Gumbel is in it. Um, there's some other pretty big names in there too. And some people from Tiger's life that we did not get in our book, but, um, after the book came out, they were, um, they were appreciative of how we treated them. And so they decided to sit for the doc and, um, Uh, And there's a real, you know, if you know your golf writers, uh, I think I can say Michael Bamberger, you know, Alan Shipnuck, uh, Karen Krause from the New York Times, uh, who brings some terrific perspective to, um, you know, having covered Tiger for so long. So I'm really proud of it. I think it's going to be, um, I know it's going to be a big deal for HBO. So, um, you know, got, got our fingers crossed for sure.
0: So going back to, I'm super excited for the HBO documentary, by the way, uh, can't wait for that, especially if it comes around or comes out around the masters, uh, that'll be perfect timing. Um, so I want to go back to that match real quick. One thing that Kyler and I have been pushing ever since uh, we have been doing it for a while now, but after last weekend, on the 18th, you know, you got to listen to a lot of the, the golfers talk, you know, they were mic'd up, but it's one of the times you actually get to hear what they say. So we've been pushing for a lot of, not less commentary, but more of listening to players. So that's that's one thing that we hope to see this coming up weekend is, you know, obviously they can be more free with what they say, but we want to hear more of what they have to say.
2: Well, I think it's great. I think it's more that you can, you know, interject uh, technology into a sport. I mean, look what NFL Films has done, um, you know, miking players and coaches. Um, but. You know, it's so controlled by the league and by films that, you know, what you see on Inside the NFL is a, it's terrific because no one else has that, uh, has the right to really, to put that audio on the air other than films because it's an appendage of the league. So whatever the tour decides to do um, in terms of, I mean, I would like to just hear. Maybe not so much between the players, but I'd love to hear the interaction between the player and the caddy. Um, is
1: yeah. there,
2: is there, trying to figure things out um, in terms of what club, yardage, um, you know, the elements and everything else, or just when maybe somebody's coming off a bad hole, um, and the caddy saying to them X, Y, and Z. Look, this is uh, we got to make a move here. You know. We got to pick it up. We got to make a shot. And some of that stuff I think is so rich that um, done the right way and filtered through the truck. um, I don't see why the, I don't see why the tour wouldn't embrace it, especially if they're trying to attract a younger audience, which is used to from everything from reality TV to Instagram where you, you know, you're, you feel like you're living other people's lives that um, that wouldn't become a bigger element in these broadcasts. And I, I would be shocked if there isn't more of that going forward. I know gambling is going to be a, Mm
1: -hmm.
2: you know, a huge element in these broadcasts going forward in terms of um, uh, an entire, entirely different broadcast that you can uh, probably get on your phone or through an app that, Um, you're going to be able to bet on every single shot, you know, in terms of, is it going to make a tee shot? Is it going to end up in the fairway? Uh, Par three, is he going to be on the green? Is he going to be within 10 feet? Um, Is he going to birdie this hole? Is he going to bogey this hole? I mean, the the permutations are off the charts when you have, um, you know, at, at one time or another, what, 75 people on the golf course? So it, I think it's, that is a revenue stream. In fact, I know it is because I've talked to people at the tour. That is a, that is probably as big a focus as they have moving forward. Well, I can't
1: wait for that. And yeah, like Josh said, I'm a huge proponent of, you know, if, especially in matches like this weekend, the commentators should be there to throw to sponsors and then we should hear the players nonstop. But uh, you know, like I said, uh, Armand Katan with this author of the Tiger Woods book has got this name on the face Go buy the book anywhere you buy books, go buy all of his other books. I'm actually, uh, just got in his NBA book about David Stern. Can't wait to start that. Um, I've got one last question for you. And I think Josh has a last question. Okay. Um, if you had to describe tiger in three words, what would they be?
2: I think I can describe them in one word and the word would be complicated. Um, mm-hmm. I think that's the, or how about this? Very, very complicated. Those are my three words. Yeah.
0: So my my the so this is the last question I was here, Armor continue on. Thanks for joining us. We really appreciate you taking the time my to my
2: pleasure, guys, And
0: with us. Um, so the last question is kind of going off of his, the the main question that you were trying to get to from the book and all of your research and the thousands of hours you put in. The one question is, and you kind of gave a brief answer there, but who is Tiger Woods? What what did you find out through your research and
2: how would you what would you say who is Tiger Woods? I would say he is, um, for the most part of his life, he was a machine. He was programmed, he was um, built to do exactly what he did um, at a, I think, an enormous personal price for his growth as a, as a person and as a human being. Um, I think now he's um, kind of a man in full, um, he's paid an enormous price personally for the transgressions and everything that the world found out. but I think he's i think he's happier than he's ever been. I think he's a more humane um, understanding human being. and honestly, I think his crawling out of that hole that he found himself in in Memorial Day weekend 2017 is the greatest comeback and the greatest triumph of of his life and his career. Um, You can take the number of majors and you can talk about, you know, Sam Snead's record and everything else. But I think that for him to be able to crawl out of that hole and into the light and become the man he is today and the father most importantly the father he is today to those two wonderful kids is a um it's just extraordinary and i think that's what we're seeing now is is um at 40 what 3 4 um 75 45 yeah 44 is mm-hmm. um is a is a it's just a wonderful story and i hate to put it in those terms but tiger woods is um I think he's a, he's the man that, you know, we, a lot of us never thought he was going to become um, that he was going to become a, a victim of, of his success. And I think now that he's, he's back on top of the mountain, but he appreciates it more than he's ever, um, maybe ever believed that he could appreciate it.
1: Yeah, that's a great answer. Uh, Armin, Mr. Katayan. thank you so much for joining us today. All right, Tyler. This, Thanks,
2: Josh. You guys are great.
0: No, thank you I very work much. Hard. All right, yes, man, I hard. I mean, I could have,
1: I could have asked Happy just an soon. hour about the, uh, real sports just alone, but, uh, when I finish the, uh, the David Stern book, I look forward to having you back on.
2: You bet. Thanks a lot, fellas. Appreciate it, Thank man. You. Have a good day. Yes, okay. sir. Bye-bye.
1: Bye.
0: Man, what a great interview. And, uh, you know, a little nugget, uh, that was, uh, right before the interview, it didn't, uh, it's not really thrown in there, but we were definitely called up and coming journalists. So that's, uh, that's a lot of credit for what we do on this show. So, uh, so shout out to Armand Contean for that. That was a pretty good compliment from him. I guess we can uh, go ahead and uh, light some cigars and take a seat in the degenerates' den.
1: Let's do it, Josh. I mean, you, t- you heard him after, right after he called his journalist. Uh, he told us not to fuck it up, and I don't think we did.
0: I, I don't think so either. I, th- I thought the interview was really well, uh, and, you know, we'll just have to continue to conduct ourselves conduct ourselves professionally. I guess we can go ahead and get the, the cigars lit up and uh, take a seat. So, uh, wh- what bets do you have for us today?
1: Oh, uh, Josh, it's good to be back in the de- de- degenerates den. You know, I've got this nice cubana here. My first prop bet, what style hat will Phil Mickelson wear? A baseball cap is minus 220, visor plus 170. Ooh,
0: I like this. I'm, I'm actually just going to go with the one I hope. I hope he brings out a
1: visor. What if he goes no hat? Oh, that's not an option. Well, I mean, I think we need to ride it in plus five hundred. Give me the money.
0: Give me, give me the plus one seventy five on a visor. It's going to be a nice day out there. Uh, it, it's visor weather for sure.
1: This, this is like uh, in Ireland where you can just go and bet on anything, and the guy will take it. It's like when Rory's dad <laughs> bet five hundred dollars. Like my son's going to win the the open one day. And he's like, yeah, all right, I'll take your money. It paid off, and I, I'm going to do the same thing. He's not going to wear a hat.
0: All right, no hat.
1: All right, so here's this one: uh, total number of commercials Peyton Manning is on during the broadcast. Over, uh, over, under one and a half.
0: Oh, I'm smashing the over. This is free money. Yeah, if you yeah, if you're listening to this, you better take that money. I'm saying that he's at least going to be on thirty.
1: Plus one forty. Josh, he's going to be on one and a half in the first commercial break.
0: Exactly. Especially with the new TV coming out, the new uh, series coming out. Yeah. Peyton loves TV. He's almost as bad as Baker.
1: So, I've got a couple. I've got uh, one or two more we can get into. Uh, This is going to be the longest tee shot on the third hole. Phil Mickelson and Tom Brady are both plus 105. Now, the, the key is it has to be in the fairway. Uh, I'm grabbing I, I'm Mickelson. One thirty-four favorite. What is this? Uh, longest drive and a uh, third hole. What was Tiger? Uh, minus one thirty-four. What's Manning? Uh, Manning, Manning and or Mickelson and Brady are plus one hundred and five. I'm not sure about Manning. I, I'd imagine he's around the same. Gotcha. Uh, give me Mickelson. Mickelson. I so I'm gonna I'm gonna go with uh I'll, I'll go with Brady here just because I think Brady and Manning are gonna be fairway finders all day long. Where I, I don't think uh, Tiger and Manning are really going. Uh, Tiger and Mickelson are really going to thrive in that. Where they're going to scramble really well.
0: Yeah, I think uh, hole number one coming out. I think uh, cleanest shot is going to go to Phil. And I think it's going to be a little bit on the right side of the fairways where it's going to stick. So uh, give me Mickelson. I think uh, I think starting off the first two holes, Brady and Manning might struggle off the tee box.
1: All right, here's the last one. Match to end on the 18th hole or in a playoff, plus 130. So say that one more, this one. Say this one more time. Say this one more time. Match to end on the 18th hole or in a playoff. It's plus 130. You can bet this at FanDuel. Wait, plus 130 for which one? Uh, either. So the match will end on the 18th hole or in a playoff. So it's going to come down to the last hole. Yes, yeah, I'm taking that. Definitely. Yeah, it's yeah, going to be it's going to Maybe be competitive. The event, these guys are too competitive, definitely going to end on the 18th hole. Yeah, if not,
0: if, if either, if any of these guys are down a few hole like a few strokes for a while, you're going to see some temper start to flare.
1: Well, that's the thing too. Uh, the, so the first nine holes, it's going to be uh, best ball. So they play their own ball, uh, you know, best score for each team. That's what score you take. And then the uh, second nine, it's alternate shot. So, like we saw on Sunday with uh, Rory and Ricky and those guys, so that's going to be a lot, a lot of fun to really see those guys kind of play as each other's caddy um, during the alternate shot.
0: So, do you think Brady will ask Phil more questions, or Peyton will ask Tiger more questions about like club Ooh. choice?
1: I mean, I think Brady is gonna. I mean, like like Armin said a little bit a little bit earlier. Uh, you know, Peyton's the ultimate shit talker, so I think I think that's what Peyton is really going to be doing during this. And I think Brady's really going to be locked in. Uh, but I don't know, because Tiger's the same way. So, it, I'm, man, I'm so excited for it. Well, I could break it down for another hour. Don't let me.
0: <laughs> okay, I won't. We'll cut it off. Well, obviously, the interview was a blast. Uh, uh, clearly the most famous person we've had on the podcast so far. So, another shout-out to him for uh, taking the time to spend with us today. Uh, Love to sitting begin. in the, de- the degenerate's den, getting some uh, some friendly bets in. Uh, helping you guys figure out what lines you should place your money on, smash the over.
1: Um, so, th- this has been a lot of fun. Yeah, man, I really enjoyed it. Can't wait to do it again, uh, especially with Armin, but especially with you, Josh. Can't wait to see you on Monday. Sounds good. Well, you have a good weekend. Later, buddy.